Welcome to the MS Dev Show episode number 21. This week, we talked to Ryan and Sharish from the DocumentDB team about a new hosted document database option in Azure. Google shows old versions of their homepage in older browsers. John Gruber and Jeff Atwood go head-to-head over Markdown. And Microsoft decides to play nice. Hey, Carl, how's it going? Pretty good. How are you doing this week, Jason? Good. I'm really excited for this episode. So we have a couple guests, actually. So we have two guys from the DocumentDB team. We have, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the names right, I promise. Ryan Crocker, program manager on the DocumentDB team. And we have Sharish Toda. Uh, he's a development lead on the DocumentDB team. Did I get those right, guys? Pretty much spot on. Yes. Yes, I told you. I, that was a <laughs> promise that I kept. So I'm really excited to talk to these guys this week. We're going to be talking about a technology called uh, DocumentDB. Um, I've been playing around with it a little bit, and later in the show, we're going to get to some questions. But uh, Ryan, you want to give a little intro on your background? Yeah, cheers, Jason. Um, I've I've been with Microsoft for for a couple of years, and and you know been working with Azure um, extensively since it launched. And you know while working with customers to bring them onto the Azure program, more and more I was working with customers and 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 working with them about adopting NoSQL databases, specifically document databases. So when um, I heard that Microsoft was building a document database as a service, it was a natural jump for me to join uh, to join the team. So this is where I am. Excellent. Sharish, you want to give a little bit of background? Sure. Um, I have been a developer with SQL Server for almost eight years now. Um, I have worked in the SQL Server manageability, T-SQL uh, areas earlier, and I have been fortunate to work uh, on DocumentDB uh, since day one, almost. Uh, and currently, I'm the dev lead uh, for the query and uh, access methods team. Okay, cool. Well, let's uh, let's breeze through the news here so that we can talk to you guys about DocumentDB. So, Carl, you actually have a link here to uh, Coding Blocks. This is another podcast that deals with coding, and they kind of break it down on a real technical level. Like mm-hmm. episode one, I believe they they just get into interfaces. Right. Have yeah, a huge this is, in depth. Yeah, theme. it's a few levels below what we talk about. Yeah. So if if you if you're looking for some dirty, you know, down in the trenches tech. You know, there's three guys that run this and uh, they're all really knowledgeable. They get some really good discussions on that. And you can tell that their years of experience pull through as well as you can tell that even uh, on other topics where it's a little bit newer technology, they, they've all had some time with it. So mm-hmm. I, I just thought this was a really get, great podcast. And uh, I think everybody who's interested in a podcast like ours would probably want to check theirs out as well. Yeah, I noticed that these guys were, they were tweeting on, on some of our, uh, some, they were retweeting some of our tweets and I know that they were commenting and then I just sort of followed the, uh, the path over, over to them and, um, they, they do some real cool stuff cause it's, it's really technical. So it's, if you want to go one level below what we talk about, I recommend listening to their podcast and go, go and subscribe. Uh, they're pretty awesome guys. Um, let's see here. So Google discourages users of old browsers. Yeah, so one thing that was interesting, um, uh, we'll have this in the show notes, but this article mentions that if you go to Google with an older browser, like an old version of IE or Firefox or whatever, that it'll actually give you an older version of Google itself. It won't give you the most current up-to-date features. Yes. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, it you know, it may be a subtle way to encourage people to keep up up to speed, but uh yeah, I thought that was something really interesting that, you know, we as web developers, you know, you know, yeah, it's use Google approach. every day. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Do, do you think they do that universally across across the board with all browsers? And how do they determine what's an old browser? Yeah, that's the, well, right here it says it's most pronounced against, uh, let's see, variants of Safari 5 and Opera 12. That's interesting. I'm guessing they're doing it as IE uh, as well, because I know that uh, Google was the one a few years ago. Actually, maybe it wasn't a few years ago. Let's say a year and a half, two years ago. They were um, for Gmail. I know if you logged in with like IE6 or maybe even 7 and 8 now, it would give you a warning uh, because that's a little bit more sophisticated than their homepage. So this is a different approach for them. I suspect if you go to the homepage with like IE6 that this would would happen as well. But I guess I haven't confirmed that. Yeah, and when a, an engineer was contacted, his response was, it's working as intended. <laughs> That's awesome. What they should do, they should go back to like their their Stanford version 
you know, from like forever ago and give them, <laughs> give them old results or, or whatever year your browser was released. That's it, you know, cause they, you can filter by, uh, by time, right. You can say, give me results that are within this certain time period. So just whatever, whenever that browser was supported that you just, those are the results you get. That would be entertaining. Now, when looking at it, you know, putting a little bit of thought into, you know, why they're doing some of this, I mean, some of it makes sense. Like if there's browsers that can't support certain newer features, it makes sense not to include them. However, being a Windows phone user, I've also seen them give uh, old versions. I'm not talking about just like a few versions ago, but really bad interfaces for Gmail when they could be giving a nicer one. So if they do it because you can't, it won't support it. That's one thing. If they're doing it to push their own products, that's a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah, This is interesting. So the, the way that I've handled this in the past, and and I know you worked on, on the project where we did this, we, we just had issues with certain versions of browsers and it really wasn't by choice. It was, you know, we tested them with those browsers and the, the amount of fixes that were going to be required were just more than, you know, the investment that we wanted to make. And, um, what we did was we did the, um, I don't know what you call it, you know, the, it's essentially like a toast, but it comes in from the top that, um, you know, that banner that pops in we'd say, Hey, you know, you can, you can try to use this, but we don't know how good it's going to work. And a couple of browsers, you know, worked okay with it, but, um, it was basically saying, Hey, we haven't tested with this. I thought that was a pretty good approach. Um, should we move on? Stand yep. standard markdown. The or uh, common markdown or whatever. Yeah, we'll whatever it's called. Yeah, this is the this is the drama of the week. Did you see this one, Ryan? Yeah, this one that lit up all over Twitter yesterday about you know, markdown. I was just like, what? What's going on? Yeah. So I, I mean, I saw I saw them. It was Jeff Atwood and and some other people saying, hey, we want to. You know, there's sort of some ambiguity in markdown, and I've seen that. You know, the markdown sort of gets interpreted different depending on where you go. So they're oh, like, yeah. we're gonna we're going to put some standards around this. And I was like, eh, okay, whatever, you know, go f- feel free to do whatever you want to do. And then I sort of yeah. missed the whole drama in the middle. Yeah. And, and then I went to, I went to, you know, Jeff Atwood's site today and I'm not really going to mince words here. He, he has this, this post that, that sort of pretends to be like, Hey, I'm going to be a nice guy about this. Uh, what was it? Is it John Gruber? Is he the, yes. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. so, you know, he, he kind of shot us down and says that this is a stupid idea and that's okay. But, but he, uh, sort of the way that this reads is, uh, John's being a big baby and we're going to do what we want to do. <laughs> so I, I think, uh, and the fact that he put this whole thing public, I, I think, I think everybody's just kind of caught in the middle of this. Um, but yeah, and then I listened to some comments that, that John made and yeah, he's just like freaking out over it. It's like, you can't do this. He's like, why, why do you got to go and, you know, put some standards around it or, or whatever. And I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not quite sure why, what the negative reaction is. I mean, if Jeff wants to sort of push this forward, I don't think he's even trying to add in features. He's just trying to say like, Hey, if you want to parse markdown, you should do it. You should interpret this this way and this other thing this other way i i think for for one you know it, it, it can you imagine a world where where you know different browsers interpreted html differently oh <laughs> wait <laughs> uh, no i can't imagine that oh we can we can never imagine that <laughs> this is the same kind of world right you know now you've got one markdown file that you know a particular site renders one way and another mo- site renders the same markdown file a different way it's it's complete madness yeah you know? So I, I I support the adding of standards standards to something, um, mm-hmm. you know, but hey, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and just- the thing is, if it if it doesn't catch on, I mean, really the 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 population, the developer population is going to be the deciding factor, right? If if nobody if everybody ignores this, then then that was what was meant to be, and everybody follows this, then that was what was meant to be. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, a lot a lot of drama though. I just I'm like, holy crap. Uh, this yeah. is this is just this is just unbelievable i i don't know i guess i'm 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 for a standard and 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 maybe it's just because of one thing that happened to me there there was it was a few weeks ago i wrote some markdown and i was using markdown pad which is a really nice tool and i wrote some markdown in there it looked correct and then i pushed up to github and it didn't look correct and i tested it in a whole bunch of different markdown applications and it looked different in every single one and yeah. markdown's not complicated like Oh, it's it's actually pretty simple. And I had the same thing yesterday. I was I was publishing a document about doc, document DB, and yeah. I was 
I, I was create, authoring it in Markdown Pad because it's a really cool tool. And then I pushed that up to GitHub and it came out all weird. You know, all the indenting was wrong. And yeah. I was like, come on, what? Yeah, there's only like eight constructs in it, so it can't be that hard. <laughs> yeah, so I'm 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 awful standards, you know, where where it makes everybody's life easier. Yeah, um, you know, not for standards to kind of. Um, I think people uh, get concerned about standards because they see it as kind of like a watchdog and a a way to to stifle innovation and 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 you know creativity and that kind of stuff, but. Uh, I don't see a standard as, as being that I see a standard as kind of just a, a way to give everybody the same experience. Right. Right. No, that's a really good point. Yeah. And, and these also weren't just random guys that decided to do this. These were like the biggest markdown users on the internet. I mean, you have <laughs> yeah. you know stack exchange, Reddit, GitHub, yeah. um, you know, discourse, the guy who wrote Pandoc, which is about converting document types. I mean, these are people who understand mark down and understand the issues of you know keeping things you know in a sane way yeah these guys i mean they're 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 i didn't even realize like who was involved in this that, that's they're responsible for what like 95 percent of all the markdown that exists on the internet not that they wrote it but the actual you know where it's used yeah that's crazy so, anyway <laughs> it's pretty nuts yep <laughs> Uh, next story here. Microsoft is ready to even share their inter. Oh yeah. Talk about this one, Carl. This one's interesting. Yeah. So so a few weeks ago, Google had announced that in Chrome, that they were not going to implement uh, Microsoft pointers. And not only that, what little support they did have was being removed. Um, So this is Microsoft's response is we will not only, you know, give you our code to do this, but we're going to give you our reference stocks, our, our architectural documents, our, our test suites, everything. We will do whatever it takes, you know, up to and including coding it for you to get this put into Chrome. Now, granted, there's no response with this article yet, but you know, it's just, I mean, Microsoft put a lot of effort and thought into these pointer events. Well, and this is the standard, right? This is the W3C standard. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so, so Chrome, Chrome just, yeah. So Chrome is, is, is just being a big baby. So Chrome now is the, uh, or should I say Google is, is John Gruber in this, <laughs> in this drama. <laughs> and, uh, and they're like, Nope, we're not going to do it this way. And, and now it looks like Microsoft is saying, Hey, we're, we're going to, we'll give you anything you want here as far as code and resources. This is awesome. Yeah. Uh, so did, did did Google respond to this yet or not? Or is this just not, sort not of that I now? found? No, no, but um, I, I'll also include the original um, uh, sources too in the show notes for when they uh, said that they weren't going to support it anymore. Yeah, this is interesting. I wonder how this one's going to play out. Yeah, it's it's going to be really interesting. It, I, I hate these kind of, you know, we choose not to implement standard because it doesn't suit us kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it drives us nuts because how do you, how do you build a better internet experience when, when one person who happens to have a, a fairly strong segment of the market kind of decides now nah, we're going to go our own way and everybody should just kind of do what we're doing. Um, yeah. And so. I think, I think there's this feeling in the industry too. I, I I've read some comments on this where, you know, they, they don't, nobody wants to let Microsoft get their way because they're like, Oh, well, you know, we're, we're just going to have history repeat itself. They're, they're going to start, you know, controlling this whole ecosystem. And I don't know. I think, I think that's well, history, a bit unfair. History, history is repeating itself. It's just a different party. This time. Yeah. Yeah. We just, we just switch places and, yeah. uh, and nobody's, uh, well, I think there are people recognizing that, but, um, yeah. <laughs> interesting. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. So let's, uh, oh, uh, one more thing. Um, so that was all we had for the news. But what I did want to talk about, I just wanted to ask everybody, you know, the show is free. We, uh, we don't even have, there's no, there's no ads of any type, at least at, at this point. Um, so my only ask is that, uh, anybody listen to this show, uh, any, any of our subscribers go out and rate us in iTunes and, uh, in Stitcher, which or whichever one that you're using. And, uh, it would really help out the show because that helps make those show up in the search results a little bit higher. And that's going to get us more listeners. So just go out there, just jump in iTunes. Even if you don't write anything or you just say, I like the show five stars done. We'd really appreciate it. So now we can talk about something really exciting document DB. 
Uh, so can you guys give us, uh, you know, an overview of what DocumentDB is? Yeah, sure. Um, so DocumentDB is a fully managed um, document database delivered to you as a service running in, 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 in Azure. Um, and that's pretty much my 10 second elevator pitch. Okay. Um, yep. So what, what is a document database then? So document databases is, is one of the flavors, if I flavors is the right word of, of NoSQL databases. So it's one of the categories um, where you have this concept of uh, schemaless storing and retrieval of, of, of documents. And, and documents kind of a funny word. And a lot of people said, well, can I put my word documents in it? And can I put my PDFs in it and that kind of stuff? But it's not that kind of document. It's, it's, it's a JSON document. Mm -hmm. So give us JSON data regardless of what this what the schema looks like we'll store it for you we'll index it and allow you to query on that excellent so there's you know there's obviously a number of these out there there's like mongodb i think is one of the big ones couchdb i'm sure you're familiar with some of the the bigger ones yeah, yeah. so i mean there's there's a whole heap of them there's you know cloudant and couch and mongo and raven and there, then there is a bunch of other ones that that you know are are emerging and doing different things and each one has their own kind of, you know, quirk and, 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 and feature and they're trying to solve different problems. But yeah, there's a heap of them. What were the key scenarios you had in mind when you were uh, making a document database for Azure? So I think the key, key things that we, we had in mind when we started out with, with this document database, you know, some of the key things we said was um, a lot of them have promised to be completely schema free, right? And, and we wanted to really deliver on that on that promise of, of being completely schema free. So not only when you store the data, but how you retrieve the data as well. We really wanted to kind of be schema free explicitly and implicitly. We didn't want to have these kind of schemas um, implied. And then when we delivered this thing as, as a service on Azure, rather than as a product that you could deploy onto a VM, you know, we, we really set out to make this thing a true multi-tenanted kind of service with predictable, reliable, consistent kind of performance per tenant. So not where your 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 performance, you know, if you execute query A today, sometimes it's quick, sometimes it's slow, and you can't really predict it. We really wanted to set out to have this thing as a multi-tenanted service, but have these predictable kind of, you know, results so that you, you can actually learn to rely and predict um, on the service. We also wanted to make it um, truly elastic in scale so that you could in increase your usage in these small incremental kind of chunks rather than kind of paying, you know, a couple of hundred bucks a month for a small environment and then a couple of thousand bucks when you wanted to step up just a little bit and then, you know, tens of thousands when you wanted to step up even more. You know, so we really wanted to set out to be a true service kind of model where you could just turn the dial a little bit and increase a little bit and then keep turning that dial until you reach you know, the point where you want to, where you want to reach and, and have absolutely no limits. So, you know, you could go from running a database that has one capacity unit right up to a database that has tens of thousands of capacity units. Mm -hmm. um, and we really, that was one of the biggest kind of drivers for us um, when we set out to do this. Okay. Yeah. I've used some of the, some of the, you know, I guess you would say installable document databases in the past and 90% of the work of getting started is actually installing it. So I love that you guys, I love that, that we actually have something built as a service now where, um, you know, I, when I went out and provisioned this thing, I just went out to the, to the portal. I said, give me a new document database. And I don't know, I don't know what the time was, but it was a matter of seconds. And I had that. And then I went in and I started writing code against it. Um, yep. whenever you're talking about something like MongoDB, you know, you got to install it and configure it and define all these parameters and things like that. I found it much more complicated. So yeah. I, pr I really like having it available as a service. There are some of the third party guys that have kind of got Mongo as a service, right, and, right. service and that kind of stuff. But, but those, I mean, while, while, whilst it takes away from that kind of initial setup and you don't have to set up your VM and set up the clusters and your replicas and all of that kind of stuff, you still don't get that kind of small fine grain control when you want to step up in, in, in terms of scale. You know, right. you can't go up and come down and go up and come down in, in these small incremental kind of steps. And some of the features that we've got planned on our roadmap, you know, that'll already start kind of delivering on the promise of a service. And then you, you, you just get things inherently because it's a service. You don't have to worry about it. Yeah, I just find it so much easier. So yeah. I, I'm, I am curious, I, you know, I have to ask this question um, because before it before 
uh, you know, document DB came out. This was really the question that, that everybody had was, you know, why, why did you decide to build a new solution from the ground up instead of using some, something like MongoDB and exposing that as a service through Azure? Yeah. And, and, and it is a good question. And I think when we started out with, with the product, um, you know, there was a driver internally for, for something that, that could do what we wanted to do. And we sat down and we looked at the time, and this was what, about 12 months ago, 18 months ago? Yeah, two years ago. Yeah, about two years ago. Yeah. We sat down and we looked at yeah. the market and we said, well, what's, what's available? And we took a look at everything. Mm-hmm. And we said, well, can any one of these things deliver what we needed? And, and some of them kind of got close in certain aspects and some of them got close in other aspects, but there was no one thing that gave us that real value of, of you know, being completely schemaless, um, being completely elastic, being, being able to deliver it as a service that we could actually build on top of. And by the time, you know, we, and we'll talk about indexing later, um, you know, if you guys want, you know, we'll dig into that a little bit. But by the time we, you know, investigated how much effort it would take to, to, swap out and put in our indexing engine, you know, when you rip out the indexing engine of a database and replace it with something else, you've ripped out pretty much 90% of a database, right? So by the time we we looked at doing that to give us the functionality we wanted, we might as well have just written it from the ground up ourselves, you know, mm-hmm. and, and and by writing it from the ground up as ourselves, we had the 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 ability, you know, and the luxury to to build it exactly like we wanted. And, and, and give customers and end users that, that, that fine-grained kind of control that a service gives you um, rather than kind of trying to build on top of something that, that, that's already out there. Okay. And there was some really good kind of box install products that are out there, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and those have moved along a lot in, 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 the, in the two years. But we still are happy with the decision that we chose to build our own. Now, when I was looking at this and researching it, I w- I'm – really not too familiar with document databases as a whole. And I noticed that there's a term called consistency. Can you explain to that or to us what that is and kind of what the different levels are? Sure. Um, So let's start off with the one kind of um, end of the spectrum, right? And that's what people call strong consistency. And it all comes down into, um, let's ignore the rights for now, but let's, let's talk about reads out of a database, right? So if you've got a single node and I write a record into that node, um, what what can I, when can I, after I've written that and, and, and written to the index and stuff, when can I actually read that, right? So strong consistency says, um, I want to make sure, so in a single node, it doesn't matter because there is only one. Let's pretend that there is now multiple replicas in the case of document DB or in the case of any highly available kind of system where you've got more than one node, right? Now, when I do a write and I rep and I and I replicate that to other replica nodes, the consistency level says, well, when I want to do a read, okay, strong consistency says, well, I want to make sure that you never ever get a dirty read. You never read something that's now out of date. So I'm gonna wait for a majority of my quorums to kind of agree on what the latest record is. And once they all agree, or a majority of them agree what the what the latest record is or the latest version of that record, then I'm going to give that back to you as a read. Okay. So strong consistency is the slowest level of consistency, but it's the one that gives you the most predictable results. You know, when I do a read, I'm going to get a result. If I do another read immediately afterwards, I'm going to get the same result. Um, and so people are used to that because that's what traditional relational database systems like SQL Server um, and Oracle and MySQL and, and those kind of guys do. But one of the biggest problems with that is the fact um, that as you scale this thing out and you create more and more nodes, more and more replicas, the problem kind of exp- exponentially gets worse and it really starts slowing down um, your, your performance, right, in terms of reading. So a lot of people will then say, well, there's this cool thing called eventual consistency. Now, eventual consistency is on the other end of the spectrum where um, a write happens but we don't block reads at any point. Um, we just let the reads happen from any of the uh, uh, from any of the replicas. Now, what could happen is that I my read lands on a replica that doesn't yet have the write that propagated to it. So I get an old record or a dirty read, and then I do another read immediately afterwards, and I land on a different replica, and that replica has the update. So now I get a different version of the same record. And then I do another read and I go back to another replica that doesn't yet have the update and I get an old read. So you get this weird, inconsistent, unpredictable kind of behavior. 
um, in your application. But from a performance point of view, for your reads, it's really, really quick because we don't block any, any, any reads. We just let you read anything you like. But you have to handle the fact that you could be reading all data. So those are the two kind of ends of the spectrum, you know, and, and people are used to either using strong consistency or eventual consistency. Um, and it's kind of like, well, I want some of both. You know, I want some of the benefits of, of eventual, but I, I don't want to have the unpredictable kind of nature I want the predictable nature of strong consistency. So how do I kind of balance these two off and what kinds of trade-offs do I need to make? So that's, so that's what we mean by consistency. Um, and in document DB, we did some extra work. We said, well, we don't want people to kind of necessarily make that decision right up front and be bound to that decision forever. You know, we want you to be able to tune your consistency um, as your application needs and as your query um, demands change. We want you to be able to change the consistency at a query kind of level. Um, we've also introduced, well, oh, we didn't we didn't build them, but we've introduced two extra levels of consistency. So you don't, so sitting between strong and eventual, we've got bounded staleness that says I can tolerate a certain level of, of stale data, but not beyond a particular level. And then we've got this concept called session um, consistency. And in a user interface or user-centric kind of system where users are writing and reading to, to, to a record, it's nice to be able to, you know, read the write that you've just made. You know, if you create a record, you know, if I go and change my age from, you know, 38 to 21, um, you know, and I do, an, I do a read immediately, I want, it would be great if I could actually see that. I don't want to have to wait until that's propagated across all the replicas before I see that change. So we've got this concept called session consistency, where while you're in a session, um, you can read your own write. So effectively, it's strong consistency in that session. But for everybody else on other sessions to the database, they are operating in an eventual consistency mode, where eventually they all get to read the writes that I'm busy making. But for me, I can read my writes immediately. And we think that one's a really nice trade-off between um, the two, between strong and, and, and eventual. And that in document DB is actually the default. You can change it. You can pick any one of the other, um, uh, any one of the four. But by default, we've gone with session because we think it, it, it provides really nice kind of trade-offs. I think that sounds really cool too. And you, you mentioned that you can change those levels. When or how do you change those? Because I was... I was a little bit unclear as you were going through there. Maybe you just went a little fast for me, but can you explain that a little bit more in detail? Sure. So when you when you create a database, you pick a, a level of consistency. So you pick session consistency, for instance. And and as you do queries, so as you do a read, you can actually override the default consistency level on a read. So if you wanted to do a read and you want that read to be really, really quick and not be blocked, and you don't care that you could potentially be reading an old record, then on that query, as you execute that in the server, you can give a directive that says, uh, give me an eventual or eventually consistent read. Um, so at a read level, you can weaken the, the default consistency of your database. That is really cool. Because, because for my application, I mean, I, I, you know, I guess I'm not quite sure when I would, what applications would use eventual consistency or strong consistency, but I could see knowing that more at the query level. I mean, sometimes I just, you know, th there's just certain things. I mean, if you're looking at a, a day worth of information and in the last five minutes just really aren't that important, yeah. you know, I'm just going to do the eventual consistency option. I just want the data as quick as possible. Absolutely. And then if I'm modifying, you know, somebody's password or, or, you know, I don't know, their, their email or something like that, that, yeah. you know, there could be. Well, if you're doing a financial transaction and you're reading some yeah. bank balance yeah. or something, then you want to know that you're reading the, the, the correct bank that's balance, right? Yeah, that's that's probably the best example. <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, indexing before. Um, so how does indexing work in DocumentDB? Okay, so I, I can take this. Yeah, uh, mm -hmm. It's a highly concurrent, um, flash-optimized uh, variant of a B-tree, uh, which, uh, which can enable a high throughput. So there have been a lot of uh, there has been a lot of re research in the recent past about a lock structure merge approach, uh, and a lot of uh, our competitors have this variant. So we have worked hard to introduce that into our system, which essentially enables us to do a high write throughput uh, while we are indexing everything. 
So now I can get into the details of the programming, but that's that's the underlying uh, technology which lets us do what I was, I'm going to explain. I think the, the point that you're trying to make there is that it's doing indexing on the fly as you're writing the records. Is that correct? That's right. So traditionally, if you look at the relational stores, they use B-trees, uh, which has been there for a long time. And B-trees are great uh, in terms of reading fast. When you index something, you can read in uh, logarithmic time. So that that's the traditional, uh, you know, it's a disk optimized data structure. Mm-hmm. And so those are great. But uh, in the face of a high write throughput, if, if you, which is the core feature of DocumentDB, they won't sustain that. So the throughput will decrease. And in the recent times, there have been a lot of research uh, to make some variations of this B-tree. Yeah, so so we know that there's you know a ton of thought process behind yeah. it. That's that's pretty neat. Exactly, and so uh, this lets us do um, auto indexing, which is our core feature and, and something that we're very proud of. You don't have to specify anything, unlike the relational data stores, or in fact, you know, some other document databases out out there. Mm-hmm. So everything is auto indexed. You can just start inserting data and start querying, and everything is 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 indexed, and you know you start getting results uh, fast. So you that but before along with that we also have two other options we have indexing modes one is a consistent indexing and the other is lazy so here this consistent indexing shouldn't be confused with the previous discussion of consistency that ryan had this consistent indexing essentially means as you are writing any record any document it's indexed right there so it is you get the ack uh, if if a document has being written, you can assume that it is indexed right there. So it's it's an online indexing kind of a thing. As 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 soon so as you're inserting it, so yeah. So as soon as you get an act, it essentially means it's indexed. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's consistent, which is what you know the the general behavior in in traditional systems. And that's a default in document DB. <laughs> yes, and that's a default. Okay. There's the other option, which is a you know a lazy kind of an indexing, which happens in the background, and this is. Uh, desired when you want the indexing to not come in the way of your read write throughput okay so, so this, so this right. would be really good where you're doing kind of like you know a big dump of data yeah and then you kind of stop writing and then you want you know to be able to read that if you if your queries are generally based on previous data let's say previous day's data then you don't need to index it in in line along with your writes so so if you dump in a whole bunch of data and you tell it to do this lazy indexing, does that mean that, um, um, at, you know, as it sits there, it's still it's still being indexed. You're just not it didn't happen in that acknowledgement. Uh, correct. It may okay. happen. It, it is basically um, it, it, it basically means that your queries may not get you the absolute latest data. It can mm-hmm. happen. It will happen in the background. Right? At some point, it will catch up. OK. Right. So these are the two modes that the indexing provides. As we said, consistent indexing is the default. So if you want to have higher throughput than what we provide, then you could, uh, and, and especially in a scenario where you don't query uh, on the latest data, then lazy is helpful too. Um, we have that option. So along with the um, indexing mode, we have the uh, automatic mode. So this this means you can index everything um as I said, the, the default is automatically indexed, but you could control that also. You could override it to say, don't index me anything. So that, that's one option as well. So you could override it to say, don't index anything. Let's say you're archiving a collection. You don't want to query. You don't want to, you don't want any indexing storage. Uh, then you could switch it off, right? Um, however, we have some advanced features where you could switch off the indexing at the collection level, but at specific document level, so if you're inserting a new document, which only uh, you want to query just that document alone, you could specify at the right time of the document. Okay, so the um, um, what was what was the question I was I was thinking of whenever you were talking? Oh, so the so the indexing, you it sounds like a sort of an an on or off thing. Um, I assume that the trade off for indexing is is just additional space used in your database. Well, along with the space, it's also the uh, the CPU required. To yeah, some performance, right? Performance, yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. And and what does that look like? I mean, as far as space usage, is it, you know, since by default it's indexing everything, is that space usage very significant? No, so the kind of optimizations we made, and in fact, we show these uh, results in our portal, and you can get the details, uh, mm. the storage quota. Uh, we have very less overhead, and, and you know, which will uh, we we have a lot of optimizations 
um, to ensure that you don't we don't actually overrun that. However, you know that that actually. Uh, leads me to the next point that I was going to make, which is you can control this. If you think that you do, you're indexing more than what you need, especially if you don't want to query uh, certain branches of your document, you could control that by having uh, by inserting something called index paths. So we do support insert, insert finely precise control of uh, included and excluded paths. So you could exclude some paths if you don't want to query on them. So you don't want to pay any extra penalty on them. Okay. So if, the, you know, so if your document has a whole bunch of data in it that you know you're never going to query on, then then you know exclude that from your index, and that'll save you storage costs, but it'll also kind of lower the CPU overhead when you write that document. So you'll get even faster write throughput. Okay. I, I like the idea. I like the idea that it's indexing everything by default. I, I know that that makes some people a little uneasy <laughs> because they're like, oh, that's wasteful. But I mean, the reality is. You know, 99% of, of applications, you know, there are nowhere near, you know, people are like, I have big data. And then you'll say, well, how much data do you have? And it's like, I have hundreds of gigabytes, you know, and it's, you know, people just don't understand like the, the new scale of data of like what is actually a lot of data and what's not a lot of data. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I was I was talking to a customer this morning and and, and they they have a requirement of moving hundreds of terabytes of data a day. Um, and I'm, you know, I was sitting here trying to wrap my head around what a hundred hundreds of terabytes of data a day looks like. And I'm yeah. just, oh my word. That's just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now that's a lot of data. Yeah. I, I, you don't want to automatically index everything there, but I'm just no. thinking even, even if you have a, let's say you're building an e-commerce store and you had 5,000 products. I mean, that is like zero space, even with, with everything indexed. I mean, it's just, right. it's a ridiculously small amount yeah. of data Yeah, yeah, absolutely. when it yeah. comes to it in reality. Right. Yep. So the nice thing, you know, with DocDB is is that you know we 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 index and we do automatic indexing and we make your life easier by default. But we give you that power and the control that you can then kind of say, no, actually, I know better, and I'm going to override you in certain um, in certain areas. Yeah. So these are all the levers that we have to increase your write throughput. You could mix and match them. And a couple other things that I wanted to mention real quick is that you know, along with mentioning which paths you want to index and not, you could also specify what kind of index and what what precision you want so you could increase the precision if you if you want it to be uh, really good so there are many space controlling mechanisms here okay now i was looking through some of these examples and it looked like i'm setting up column names with each record are they stored like that and is there a way to like optimize around that if you're trying to like save bandwidth and data yeah so you know i think that, that that is the difference between um, you know having a schema that is defined in your database where I'm just kind of storing the values associated to that schema and having a schema-free database where we actually need to keep the 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 the, the document needs to be self-describing. So we we absolutely do keep those column names in the JSON with with every record. If we didn't, there'd be no way to know what this document was, right? So we we, we absolutely have to store those column names with every record. Now, around optimization, we do a lot of optimization internally in the engine um, of how we store the records and that kind of stuff. So we make sure that, you know, we aren't being wasteful. Now, I mean, some people get extreme about how they optimize stuff and they kind of create column names called X1 and X2 and X3. And I'm not at all propagating, you know, or, or, or advising that you do that. But if you really, really, really are kind of, you know, conscious of how much data you're sending over the wire, then, you know, those are some things that you can think about. But most of the time, these applications, you know, they're going to be running on a web server that's sitting in the Azure data center and it's going to be talking to DocumentDB sitting in an Azure data center. Um, do you really need to optimize the amount of data that you're sending over the wire to that level that it becomes kind of unusable? Um, mm -hmm. you know, um, I'd, I'd, I'd rather be storing first name, last name, address rather than X1, X2, and X3. Yeah. So I, I can, I can kind of explain the, the mindset behind that. Cause I've actually done that. I've done that with table storage yep. and, uh, I was actually on the same, same team as Carl. Whenever we did that, we had, uh, we were storing time series data in, in Azure table storage and we had start time end time interval. We had like those types of uh, column names, you know, quote unquote column names. And we ended up changing it to S T E T. You know, we just turned it into the two letter names yep. and it actually wasn't the data going over the wire. It was the, the actual storage requirements. Yep. So what ends up happening is you have uh, a whole bunch of metadata. So you'll have, 
um, let's say, uh, you know, we'll use the, the document DB, uh, terminology. We'll say we had, you know, 10 different collections, you know, you had user information and you had machine information and just information about, you know, a whole bunch of different types of things. And that was perfect for a document database. But then we had a collection that required, you know, data that actually uh, benefited from a schema. So like something like SQL Server was a lot more efficient at storing that. So I think kind of the root of that question was, have you guys thought about and, you know, I I guess I'm not expecting this, but um, one thing that would uh, that I would personally like to see at some point from one of these systems is is some kind of efficiency around doing that. So if if you want to put in. I don't want to say want to add a schema, but somehow it recognizes the fact that all the records are of the same structure and somehow can optimize around that. Have you guys thought about that at all? So I'd like to take this. So as as Ryan was mentioning earlier, um, we have many algorithms to ensure that we don't uh, do duplication of data, especially with JSON, as you rightfully pointed out. Mm -hmm. we have many, many comp- algorithms which ensure that uh, which, we, we have to walk a fine line between uh, two things here. One is the read-write uh, performance, the query performance. So we don't want to load everything. And, and you know, one, uh, one extreme uh, approach could be to compress everything, right? But th- that, that mm-hmm. requires a lot of CPU cost. So we have right. to take that into balance. And the other uh, trade-off is, is the uh, space. So we have to walk that fine line, and, and this is work in progress. We have many, many algorithms here that, that let us do this. Okay. No, that makes sense. I, you know, it's not something I was expecting. I just, I wanted to ask to see if there was any, any yeah. thought about doing that. I, yeah, it sounds like it's a, definitely a, a trade-off because you'd have to start doing yeah. some extra analysis or, or bolt on a whole bunch of extra logic on there. So that makes sense. Yeah, but we do ensure that, you know, we, we actually do, um, do many such algorithms to ensure that we don't have wasteful storage. I, I'm curious about what are the what are the different ways of interacting with the database? I saw there's a there's a REST interface, there's a .NET client library, there's some other libraries out there. What you know what what are the what are the different ways of interacting with it, and how do those differ? Yeah, so um, you know we've got a everything is kind of a um, a gateway is a RESTful API, so. They, you can make REST calls directly against that if you wish. Mm-hmm. But then we have a number of client um, SDKs that we use. So you mentioned the .NET one. There is a Node.js one. There's a JavaScript one. There is a Python one. Um, and there are some other ones coming in the future. Like there is, we, I know work is actively underway on, the, on, on a Java one and a C++ one. Um, now, some of them... You know, at the moment, they're, they're like wrappers around the REST layer, like a number of, of Azure services. But there are actually some, some things that we're doing that, are, that, that take it beyond just a, a REST wrapper. So in the .NET SDK, you know, there, there's different connectivity modes and you can change your protocol so you can choose HTTP versus TCP. Um, it does some kind of automatic retry and on, on throttling and, and, and transient errors and that kind of stuff. So you can configure retry policies and, and things like that in the .NET client. So we're, we're, we're evolving the .NET clients and, and, and actually we're, 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 when we build a client, we don't just want them to be kind of code gened and, 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 and ported. You know, we, we sit down in the .NET client and we say, well, what, what do .NET developers want? Oh, they want a link provider. Okay, cool. Let's build a link provider. That'll allow .NET developers to write their queries in Link. Um, in Node, what do, what do Node what do Node developers want? Oh, Node developers want a promises a library so that they can actually do promises instead of callbacks. Okay, well let's build a, a promises wrapper into into that SDK. Uh, what 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 do Java what do, what do Java developers want? All right, let's build that into the Java SDK. So. The, the idea is to kind of keep the SDKs consistent so that, you know, if you're coding with two of them, you, it's not two completely different things you want to learn. They, they need to look familiar and feel familiar, but then there'll be subtle nuances between each of those SDKs. Okay. No, that's great. So if I have a distributed application, will my data be crossing data centers? Um, and how can I ensure that, you know, data in document DB is near the application as it needs it. So by distributed application, I'm guessing you mean your app is distributed across the world, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. mul- multiple data centers. So it's running in multiple Azure data centers. Yep. So what I would then do is I would create multiple um, multiple document DB accounts um, in each of the data centers where your application runs. Um, and then 
you know, and, and actually have the application uh, accessing data locally. Now that comes into a whole other question about, you know, what do I do about concurrency and replication and, and, and all of that kind of good stuff. Um, and there's a number of different strategies around that, but, you know, you could choose to home particular users to, to a region and then all their rights kind of end up in that region. And then you use something like a geo replication feature that'll replicate, that'll replicate, you know, that right to other data centers for other people to read. Uh, and then you can have, you know, like you guys would do with your application, you can have traffic manager that sits on the top and routes people around, you know, based on, on, on whatever rules. So you could definitely set something like that up. Um, and, and if you were going to do that, I would, I'd, I'd recommend having multiple data set or multiple document DB accounts rather than one. And then, you know, moving traffic across the world. Okay. Um, I know that you talked about how indexing worked kind of behind the scenes. Um, and I didn't realize that you guys were using some of the research out of, uh, MSR. That's pretty cool. I'm just curious if you guys can share any of the other technology behind document DB. Oh, so we have a couple other things as well. So the SQL language that we have built is also a collaboration with MSR language team. So we okay. have, uh, as you may have seen, the query language has uh, nice nuances that look like SQL and yet adapt to the JSON uh, and JavaScript type system. So there's that marriage, uh, which uses uh, lots of uh, JavaScript-like expressions and also a UDF, which is a JavaScript, which is a nice... A twist to the relational UDFs, which are written in T-SQL. And like that, we use JavaScript because we are a JSON store. And JSON, JavaScript, JSON is the object literal notation of JavaScript. So we uh, we kind of incline towards JavaScript. So that, that integration between SQL, JavaScript work, even the JavaScript engine, you know, we have the internal JavaScript team that we uh, work with. So these are all a couple other yeah. examples of collaboration. So I think, you know, what Sharish has kind of brought up is that you know, while while Document DB is built from the ground up and it's and it, and it's our own kind of product, um, we didn't invent new stuff where we could collaborate and use stuff from other teams. You know, so Sharish mentioned the internal. We worked with you know Microsoft's JavaScript team to kind of use their JavaScript engine, uh, and we've optimized it for the server side. But it's it's in 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 essence the same kind of you know JavaScript engine. When you look at the hardware we run, so we run specific hardware, but it's it's in Azure Data Center and it's op and it's run by you know the Azure Data Center and it uses components internal to Azure where 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 it made sense. So we didn't go and just kind of build everything for the sake of building it. We we only innovated where we needed to innovate and where we we couldn't find something that did what we needed. Then we kind of innovated and we built something new. Okay. So how did transactions work in document DB and what kind of scenarios did you have in mind when you were uh, making them? So transactions are a tricky topic. It's, it's a very important aspect of relational stores uh, among the, uh, the asset promises. Uh, this is important. Uh, it, transactions provide asset that, that is atomicity, consistency, isolation, and durability. Um, in our world, we provide transactions through our JavaScript language. So you can write a stored procedure which runs at a collection level boundary, which means you can do CRUD on any objects within the collection across multiple documents if you need, and that the whole of the store procedure is running in a single transaction, which means all the CRUD that happens in that uh, store procedure will be either committed or rolled back you know, in an atomic way. So this provides, uh, a lot of scenarios, right? For instance, if you want to do some um, updating of uh, some other information, let's say you have a side effect that you want to go along with the actual um, CRUD operation that you want to do. Um, if you want them to be tied together, either both of them succeed or both of them roll back, that's, that's a nice scenario that you want to have in a database. Um, that's one. If you want to do a swapping kind of a thing, you know, atomically, uh, that's a transaction scenario and all the the regular traditional uh, transactional scenarios are possible. Yeah. There's one more thing that I want to add here is the, uh, which is the, which is the way our store procedures kind of um, introduce this concept of transaction. We merge the JavaScript semantics here very well. For instance, if the JavaScript runs through fine smoothly, the transaction is committed. If there is an exception, like how if you throw an exception, if if, if your program throws an exception, which is a natural way to error out from your program, it will roll back the whole transaction implicitly. 
instead of having a begin commit and the rollback kind of a semantic in T-SQL, the exceptions of JavaScript are introduced into this transaction semantic uh, nicely. Okay. So even if I'm using, you know, the .NET client, what I'm doing is I'm writing some, a, a JavaScript operation and, and it's, uh, you know, I just sort of use the the natural way that I would use JavaScript within that and I get that transaction. And like you said, if it throws an exception, it will automatically roll back for me. That's correct. Yes. Okay. Okay. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, so what kind of, uh, you know, what are the scalability targets of this? What, how, how far can I push document DB? How much money have you got on your credit card? <laughs> if I have a lot of money on my credit card. All right. So, you know, I, 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 I say that and some people could say it's kind of rather flippant and, and, and whatever. But it, in reality, we, we designed DocumentDB to be scalable in, mm-hmm. and, and web scale and infinitely scalable. And infinite is a, is a bad word because there are always finite constraints, like how many servers we could fit into a data center, for instance, um, and, and how much money you have on your credit card. But, you know, the idea really is with DocumentDB that we sell these things called capacity units. And, and as you add capacity units, we scale your application and you just keep adding capacity units and we just keep scaling, um, you know, because of the way we handle and, and partition um, resources and slice up servers and nodes and that kind of stuff. As you add capacity units, you're, you just add, keep adding collections and you just keep adding documents and your storage grows and your throughput grows. So, okay. you know, we've got some customers that are running, um, you know, today in tens of terabytes I had a customer today that I was talking to who's going to be moving over to us that that was moving hundreds of terabytes. Wow. Um, for them, it, it 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 for them it was just literally buy enough capacity units to to handle you know hundreds of terabytes. Wow, that's great. The reason I the reason I ask is not you know not for a specific scenario, but it's always good to have some headroom left, right? So yeah, you know absolutely. you're thinking I'm going to have X amount of data, and you just want to make sure that that the actual capacity is, you know, like 10 X that, that way you, you know, you have a lot of room to grow. You know, and I think, you know, capacity planning is always a difficult thing. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, it is always something that, that you should do. Um, you know, when you're building an application, think about your capacity, plan for your capacity um, and, and always leave headroom, you know? So even when, you know, if, if I say it, a collection today can only grow to 10 gig, which we're looking to lift, but today it can grow to 10 gig. Don't wait until you get to 9.9 gig and then kind of start your second collection, you know, wait until you get to 75% of that collection and then, you know, start the next one. And, 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 you know, that way you've got headroom to move around and, and give yourself some space. Okay. So what is your thinking on how we should do joins between collections? Don't. <laughs> uh, and, and the reason we say don't is because today a collection is bound to a physical node, right? So if you've got two collections, they could physically be on two separate nodes. Um, um, and when you start doing these kind of distributed collection or, uh, joins and transactions and that kind of stuff, it becomes very, very difficult because now your one query operation spans multiple actual physical machines and we need to start locking records and we need to start blocking things and, and, and across physical machines. So the idea is, is that you, you don't. So think of a collection as a, as a, as a partition. It's a boundary for, for queries, for transactions for joins. So you can do things within that collection because that confines it to one actual node and then it, and then it's you know manageable and workable. As soon as you start going across physical nodes, life becomes a nightmare. Um, so if you, if you really, you know, in this kind of concept of I've got multiple collections and my data is sharded across these collections, the best way to do it is something like a fan out query where your application actually goes off and does queries against each of the collections where you know the data is going to reside. You bring back separate result sets and you aggregate them and then present that to the user. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because I, I go out, I like the site uh, highscalability.com. I'm sure you've yeah. been there. And whenever you start talking about a lot of these really big sites, I mean, joins just start to go out the window. You know, yeah. they're, they, they start to remove those types of relationships and it's just a totally different world whenever you start to get at scale. Indeed. And, and, you know, doing joins across, you know, a collection, if all the collections are on one machine, that's possible. You know, if you've only got one collection or one node, then, you know, life is easy. But when you've got thousands and tens of, tens of thousands of nodes to work across, um, you know, then life becomes hell. Um, so, yeah, have, I'm glad you brought, you know, high scalability up. And I mean, you won't see any of those guys doing joins across, 
you know, hundreds of nodes or transactions across hundreds of nodes. They all operate in like a, a compensation kind of mode, for instance. If something goes wrong, you know, eight steps down the process, they go back and they compensate for that fact. They don't block resources and then roll back a whole transaction. They they will go back and compensate for the fact that something went wrong. Okay. Um, one scenario I've used in the past using MongoDB was uh, this sort of sister project of that called PouchDB, where you you run it's a javascript library that runs in your browser and what you can do is you can point it at your couch db and it will it'll do a, a two-way synchronization there's a whole bunch of configuration you can do you can make it a one-way configuration but it, may, it gives you a real nice option for taking you know a subset of your data offline so i was wondering yep. if you guys had any thoughts about uh you know building some kind of framework for offline support of document db I think I think that's a, a, a very good kind of point. And, and in today's world where we're dealing a lot with mobile applications, you know, where I've got a mobile phone that's not always online, I need to have some kind of a an offline store for my data. So um, Couchbase like PouchDB, those kind of things um, become very useful to do. Uh, so it it's something that, that we're thinking about um, and something we're, we're discussing internally. Uh, so the plan is to to provide something like that to kind of help with offline sync capabilities, but we're we're still in the very early discussion stages around that. Okay, very cool. All right. If I had something like a a single page app or you know a spy app, is there a secure way for the app to make the queries directly to Document DB? Yeah. So you know, I think um, well, yes and no. Um, you know, I think. Today, the way you access Document DB is you use the endpoint and, and one of your master key or your primary or your secondary key. Now, in a in a in a spy app or in a mobile phone that kind of stuff, you wouldn't want to necessarily use your master key or your primary key because you know somebody could you know get hold of that stuff um, and then you know they've got access to your entire document database account. So what we do is that we've got users the concept of users inside document db and users get a user resource token so kind of like a, a shared access signature that 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 storage um that azure storage has mm-hmm. um, i use a token as a similar kind of concept so what would happen is the spy app would need to go off um, and request this user resource token first once he's got that user resource token he can use that user resource token to talk straight to to doc db with a key that's specific to to that user um, or to that spy application kind of thing. So there's got to be some kind of a middle tier somewhere still that I can go off and get this user token first and then be able to use that user token against DocDB. And that'll stay true until we've worked with the Azure Active Directory team. You know, and once we enable Azure Active Directory, then then it's a different story because then the spy app would just go off to AAD, authenticate there, get an AAD token, and then pass that to DocDB. And as soon as DocDB can understand Azure AD tokens and and as like claims aware, and we've got that integration working, then there would be no need for a middle tier where you actually would have to generate the user request token and pass it down. So for now, you have to have some kind of a service that could generate that token and give it to your Spar app. Um, and then from that point on, until that token expires, the Spar app can just talk straight to DocDB. So document DB, I, you know, I've looked at it quite a bit. I actually, you know, I, like, or like I said earlier, I've actually written a little bit of code against it. I, I really like it. Um, one thing that I want to understand is how this is positioned against table storage. You know, when do I choose this over table storage or vice versa? So the biggest, the biggest reason that you would choose um, this over table storage is the indexing capabilities of document db so table storage has only got primary indexing capabilities and there's talk about them adding a secondary index but even still you've got primary and you've got secondary so your querying capabilities are very limited um, document db that's not the case because we index everything automatically you can query against any attributes anywhere in your json tree um, in real time straight away so you know, immediately that gives you the ability to, that's a, a, a clear distinction between the two um, services. Um, you know, we are we are a database. We're not just a storage kind of mechanism. And, and when you look at us, you know, there is a cost difference. Um, so if you're storing vast amounts of data and you're happy to query for it just on a single ID, then table storage is probably going to be work, work out cheaper for you. 
Um, but if you're storing large amounts of data and you've got high write throughput and high read throughput and you want to be able to query on you know, any property in your object, regardless of whether it's the primary index or not, and you want to execute some server-side logic and you want to do some transactions and, and that kind of stuff, then you're not going to get any of that with table storage. Okay. Hey, any future plans on the roadmap that you can disclose to us or maybe any other questions we should have asked you today? Um, we've got a roadmap that extends many, many years. <laughs> uh, and and uh, I think our poor engineers, I keep adding things to the roadmap quicker than <laughs> It. But, you know, the idea is, is that we we aggressively listen to feedback from from everybody and whether that feedback's good or whether that feedback's, you know, slamming us because we're missing a feature in preview or, or whatever the case may be. It doesn't matter. We listen to all the feedback. We take it. We, we digest it. We internalize it. And we use that to kind of feed into the roadmap that these guys get. So, you know, we we're on weekly kind of rhythms, you know, two weekly rhythms. We're pushing updates out to the service. You know, we aggressively are looking for feedback. And we plan, you know, the next kind of block of two week, four week, you know, blocks of work. So, you know, all I can say to people is if there is something in there that you don't like or something that you that that's missing and you want to see it, use, you know, use the user voice on on, on Azure, go vote for a feature, speak to the, someone on the on the on the team, you know, and talk to us about, you know, this limit is too low or that feature is missing or I really want this or I really want that. And we, you know, we will prioritize those as, as, as we need to. Sounds like you guys are just getting started. Oh, uh, we're yep. just getting started. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Okay, Carl, I see app of the week has turned into tip of the week. What do yep. you got? So this is something I've been following for a little bit, and I think uh, it's a project on GitHub. And um, I'm sure we've all in the past, we've written installers or tried to, or we have something that we want an installer for, and it's just a total pain to do. I know uh, uh, one of our, our friends, he's a big Wix, you know, supporter, you know, mm -hmm. using the Wix project to create an installer. Yeah. It's a Windows installer XML toolkit, right? Yep. But um, this is a project by Paul Betts. Uh, I know some of our listeners are familiar with him, but he has a project called Squirrel. And this, he's trying to make this way to make the absolute easiest, most minimal installer that you need. So um, right now at the version that he has right now, if you have a project that produces a, an executable, a .exe, and can package that up in a NuGet package, you can use NuGet to do, um, there's a gist there that I have, a, I'll have a, a link for It's uh, squirrel dash dash releaseify, and then the path to your <laughs> NuGet package, and it, it'll, it'll wrap that up into a basic installer. So I, I, I think this is really cool because I'll, a lot of us have a lot of small projects that would be nice to have some sort of, you know, in installer package for, but we just don't want to go through the pains of figuring out how to use the installer tools that are available. Squirrel.windows, the next generation, it says Squirrel.windows had a super complicated Wix based installer that was an unholy nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just love i don't know about you guys but i just love some of the names of these frameworks and tools that come out i mean yeah. squirrel and, and and bouncy castle and and web grease and i mean who comes up with these names well even wix was interesting because they they sort of took on the candle theme because i think there was there was like light dark candle <laughs> I'm burning know, they, my hand. yeah yeah <laughs> Help, I'm burning. yeah, yeah. Like, how do you come up with a name nowadays? I mean, do you, I, I think there's a there's an awesome project for like a random random name generator kind of thing. So you go in and say, I've got a new project, generate me a name, and you know, as I come, you know, I'm I'm bouncy squirrel. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, what the service bus team did one time is they asked Mary Jo Foley to come up with a with a code name, and she, and she she came up with Reykjavik because it was very searchable. <laughs> cool. <laughs> so. so if you uh, if you need a code name, just reach out to her. I'm sure she'd be happy to generate one for you. <laughs> awesome. We'll anything? Yeah. Anything else on Squirrel, Carl? Nope. Um, like I said, it's uh, it's out on GitHub. We'll have a link to that, and it's actually Squirrel.Windows.Next. Okay. Um, and then you got a promo in here. Yep. So yeah, we're gonna continue on. Retweet any one of our tweets for a chance to be entered for your drawing for a five dollar Microsoft <laughs> gift card, U.S. only. Um, we're going to try to hand out two, although this week I only saw one us retweet. So congratulations, Brent and <laughs> Dell. Uh, you can reach us at feedback at msdevshow.com and we'll get you that show, uh, emailed out to you. 
So like I said, just retweet any one of our tweets and uh, you'll be entered into the drawing. Pretty cool. It, it, you know, what's funny is I've, I've listened to a lot of different shows that had, you know, quite a few listeners and uh, uh, I think it was Techzilla we were talking about one time and you know, they, that was a huge show. I think it still is a huge show. And every once in a while they'd have a week. They're like, Oh, what do we have for user mail? And they're like, we had nothing. It was just amazing <laughs> how, the, how low participation can be sometimes, but we, at least we've had one person each week. So that's pretty good. And that's, that's just another plug. If you have anything you want to say to us, we're, we're ready to listen. We, you know, we want to hear your input. So if you have anything, just send it on in. Yep. We'll completely retool the show if that's what you're looking for. <laughs> um, okay. So Ryan, where can people find you? Uh, so you can, you can follow me on, on Twitter. Um, and that would be at Ryan Croco okay. or you can follow the doc DB team on Twitter at doc at document DB. Oh, that's pretty cool. What about you, Sharish? Where can we find you? Um, I am at Sharish Tota. Okay. And we'll include all of those in the show notes. Um, if you have feedback for the show, you can email us at feedback at msdevshow.com. Make sure you subscribe to us by searching for MS Dev Show in your favorite podcast app. Uh, you can find me at ytechie.com or on Twitter at twitter.com slash ytechie. Where can they find you, Carl? I can be found at wpdevguy.com or on twitter.com slash Carl Schweitzer. And please remember to fill out uh, a, a review on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, yep. wherever you wherever you get our podcast from. We'd really appreciate just, you know, rating it there just so we show up a little bit more in the in the ratings. Yep, that's your homework. So Ryan and Sharice, thank you so much for coming on here. We really appreciate it. This is great stuff. Thanks, guys. Pleasure. Thanks.